Good morning. I'd love for you to turn, to turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1 uh, this morning. I'm excited to begin this new sermon series from this book of Malachi, but I recognize that I might be the only one who's excited about this because Malachi, I'm willing to bet, is probably not a book uh, that is either your favorite or that you're super familiar with. It's kind of one of those little books toward the end of the Old Testament that uh, we don't know very well. Always, I remember as a kid, those, once we get into those uh, smaller prophet books, it's hard to memorize that part of the Old Testament, all those different names. Um, but Malachi is a very unique book. Like I said, it is the last book in the Old Testament. But more important than being the last, uh, this is the final word that we will hear from God for the next 400 years after this. Following this book, there is 400 years of silence from God's revelation in his word until we hear the cry of a baby in a manger. Uh, I also love this book because it's a very conversational book. Uh, what this book is, is a conversation be- between God and the people of Israel, kind of a question and answer with God, that God will make a statement. Uh, the people of Israel will question him on that, or maybe even challenge it, and God will respond. And what I like most about this book, though, is that Malachi is a book that is both real and raw. It has tough answers about hardship and faithfulness in the midst of that hardship. Uh, Malachi, just for some background, some history, Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. Uh, That's not a mental disorder. Uh, What that means is that Malachi takes place after Israel uh, returns from their exile. If you're not familiar with exile, in, in 598 BC, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to kind of be his Uh, judgment on earth for the nation of Israel. Israel had been in sin and idolatry for hundreds of years, and God had been patient. God had been continually calling them back to repentance uh, until the point where drastic circumstances needed to uh, take place for them to return to him. And so he used uh, Babylon as his agents of judgment to take Israel from their promised land, destroy Jerusalem, and take them into exile uh, where they would be for the next 70 years. And because of God's faithfulness, because of his mercy for them, though, this exile was not the end for Israel. And after these 70 years, they were allowed, a remnant of them were allowed to return to their land once more. They were able to return back to their homes, back to Jerusalem. But unlike us, when we come back from a very long trip, this wasn't just a normal return home where you open up the door, it creaks a little, you dust things off and get back to normal life. For them, the majority of their city had been destroyed. The walls protecting that city were gone. The temple had been leveled, and most of their homes were piles of rubble. And so God raised up men like Malachi to be his prophets, to be his mouthpieces, uh, to give people hope and encouragement, to challenge them to live the way that God had called, called them to live. And that's why I've called this series, Return to Me. Because the one thing that we need to remember as we go throughout this series is that the people of Israel in the book of Malachi had returned to their land, but their hearts had not yet returned to God. They had come back to Jerusalem, but they had not yet come back to right relationship with their Lord. And so we see clearly this morning uh, this kind of resentment, this distance between Israel and God on Israel's part, just in these first few verses of this book. God tells them clearly, I have loved you. Now, anytime anyone says, I love you, there's a certain amount of risk 
involved, especially when you say it maybe for the first time. You, you, you don't know if they feel the same way. What if they don't say it back? Uh, my family, we're, we're big I love you people, both growing up and in my family now, and so we always say it back to one another, but that's not always the case. I remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back, that second Star Wars movie, for the very first time. Uh, at the end of it, they, the heroes have all been uh, captured. The Resistance is in trouble. Uh, Han Solo is about to go into carbonite. He's about to be hunted by this bounty hunter. And Princess Leia so tenderly and gently, passionately says, I love you. And Han Solo says, I know. Psh, you know, he's covered in carbonite. He's frozen. It's like, what kind of response is that? You're supposed to say it back. But that's not really the, the, the worst uh, kind of uh, can happen when someone tells you, I love you. I looked up some kind of I love you horror stories this week, and I, I had to chuckle at a few of them. Uh, one said, after I confessed my feelings to my girlfriend, she asked me, are you sure you're not just lonely? That's <laughs> not really what you want to hear. Uh, another one said, I was in middle school, and she said something so stupid and funny that I said, gosh, I love you, and she asked what? So I panicked and changed it to I love blue, you know, very smooth. And so I spent the next 20 minutes trying to convince her that I was really into this one shade of blue while pointing at random objects and saying, like that, but more intense or, or darker. You know, it's a great cover. My favorite one. Uh, so last night I told my boyfriend, I love you for the first time. And he said, okay, drive safe. <laughs> it's just, these are not the responses you want to get when you offer those three little words. Now, but Israel's response to God's I love you might even be worse than these. Verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Israel's response to God's great I love you is how. How have you loved us? This, this is your love, God? They look around them at their city. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Some of their neighbors never came back home. The temple, God's presence among them is but a mere shadow of its former glory. Many of them are selling themselves or their children into indentured servitude to pay off their debts and taxes to their overlords. And this was hardly the glorious return that they were anticipating after 70 years. And at first, those words of how have you loved us can sound selfish to us. Yeah, how can you doubt God's love? And we're told later on that it's one of the very attributes of God's identity that God is love. After all he has done for them, and after being so faithful when they were faithless, after being so patient and calling them back over and over again, how can they question his love? Or aren't there times when we can feel tempted to have that same attitude, to doubt God's love for us in light of our circumstances as well? It's hard to hear God's I love you when you're standing next to the casket. It's hard to hear God's I love you when you're told the cancer is back. It's hard to hear God's I love you when it's another pregnancy test that comes back negative. But in these moments, God says, I love you because I have chosen you. Again, verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, Esau's descendants, may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. 
Now, this is probably not how you are expecting God to respond when they say, how have you loved us? You would expect God to say, well, look, I, I, have, I have chosen you, and I brought you out of slavery in Egypt, and I led you to this promised land, and I have cared for you, and I have been patient with you, and I have provided for you. But instead, he says, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom, what does this have to do with anything? I mean, it'd be like somebody coming into my office for counseling and saying, you know, I, I, I just don't know if God loves me anymore. And me saying, well, you know, don't you worry about that because God chose Jacob. You know, doesn't that just make you feel so comforted? But to understand how, how Jacob and Esau factor into God's love, you have to understand and go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abraham. Abraham is this guy that God chooses to be the father of a great nation that will be a blessing to all people. And through Abraham, God will raise up this nation of his descendants that will have his special favor. And he will reveal himself to them and provide for them and protect them and set them apart from every nation on earth so that they will be a blessing to the entire earth. And so this promise continues down the line. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has two twin boys Jacob and Esau. And even though only by minutes, Esau was the older of the two, which in that time would have meant that he would have had special blessings, special favor. He would receive a blessing from his father. He would have received a greater portion of the inheritance. Esau, by all accounts, should have been the one to watch, the one through which the promise would continue. But God had other plans. Romans 9 says it this way, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Their mother was told, the older will serve the younger. You see, God chose Jacob, not Esau, to be the one through which he would enlarge his special nation. In fact, God would later go on to give Jacob a very special name, the name of Israel. But what makes God's choice even more surprising of picking Jacob over Esau, Esau, is that Jacob was not exactly a morally impeccable person. He wasn't this kind of squeaky clean Boy Scout that God said, I can really use him because he's on the right track. And Jacob was a, a swindler and a liar and a cheat. In fact, the time would come where Isaac, his father, was poor in eyesight and nearing death, and Jacob would cover himself in goat, goat skin because his brother Esau was very hairy and trick his father into giving him Esau's special blessing. This was the kind of person that Jacob was. And just like God chose to love Jacob, despite the fact that he had done nothing to deserve it and had done everything to lose it, God would continue to choose his descendants, Israel, over and over again. The Bible has a very specific name for this, a word for this, the word of covenant. And we looked a little bit at covenant in our series in Hebrews, but covenant is this special promise from God. It's his way of saying, I choose you and I love you. And it's not based on your loveliness or based on anything you have done or can do, but based solely on my grace and on my choice. It's kind of like marriage, this covenant, this relationship formed in love and law. That there's this, this commitment made, regardless of what happens, still, I'm going to stick with you. And that's why God can say something like, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. He's not saying, well, well Jacob, he's a real swell guy, and, and Esau, he's just the worst. 
No, what he's saying is, by my covenant, by my promise, I have committed myself to Jacob. I've committed myself to Israel. My loyalty lies with them. It's the same concept as when Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying that you have to despise everything except for him. That in order to follow him, you have to neglect your father or mother or treat your wife and children horribly. No, he's saying is your priorities have to be about me. Your loyalty, your commitment, your devotion must lie with me first. We tend to think of love and hate and emotions and sentiment. But biblically speaking, love is choosing the good of one over another. And so in this moment where Israel says to God, how have you loved us? God says, look around. You're still here. And I'm still here with you. He says, Edom, Esau's descendants, they'll be lost to history despite their best attempts to rebuild. But he tells Israel, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So how can we break this down? You know, what does this mean for us? We're talking about exile and covenant and Jacob and Esau and Israel and Edom, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. But it all comes down to this. Israel had allowed their present circumstances to drown out God's I love you. They, they looked around and they say, God, I know you say you love me, but I can't help but feel that if you actually love me, my life wouldn't look like this. And I think that is a feeling that we have all probably been able to relate to at some time or another. Who of us hasn't looked around at one point in life and thought, God, this isn't what I thought I was signing up for. God, I thought if, if, if I followed you and I did everything I was supposed to do, then I would have found Mr. or Mrs. Right by now. Or God, if, if I was doing things your way, why do I keep getting passed over for promotions at work? Or God, I raised my kids and the church and, and, and in your word, and I love them as you've called us to, and still they're far from you. The list could go on and on, but like all of this, you know, like Israel, all of these things could, could pile up and pile up until we find ourselves saying, God, how have you loved us? And if God's I love you is hard for you to hear this morning, I want to offer you the same encouragement that God offers Israel through Malachi. Don't allow your present circumstances to drown out God's I love you. Don't allow the hardships of your life, the things that you look around and struggle with, to make you doubt God's love for you. You see, when God tells Israel, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel, as Christians, we get to know this reality. We read something like that, and we see that Jesus is on the way, that he is the one who will make it possible to see the glory of God go beyond the borders of Israel to the lips of countless people throughout time and throughout history. And knowing that this prophecy speaks of the coming of Jesus, if we are ever tempted to doubt God's love for us, to ask that question, how have you loved us, then we need look no further than the cross. The cross is God's loudest, I love you. 
And it's I love you that rings throughout eternity. 1 John 4, 9 says it this way, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This love, not that we loved God, but that he, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, just as God chose Jacob, despite his unworthiness, and despite doing everything he could to not be the one God would choose, God has also chosen us. Through Christ, God has covenanted with us. The evidence of God's love in our lives is this covenant in Christ, this gracious gift. That whatever else might be happening around us, the cross shows us that we are loved and that we are chosen and that we are identified with him. And when times are tough and we are surrounded by disappointment and despair and doubt, God says to us, I have loved you. And I love you because you are mine. So remember who you are. Remember whose you are. You are loved. And as we remember God's covenant with us through Jesus, I can't help but think of the words that Jesus said when he established a new covenant, saying, this is my blood shed for you and my body that is broken for you. And so at this time, we're going to go into our time of communion. I'm going to have the men who are serving come up. And as we go through this time, I want us to reflect on God's love for us through Jesus and encourage you that when life gets loud, don't let the whispers of God's love and faithfulness be forgotten. Remember all of the times that God has been faithful that he has seen us through. I also want you to live with your eye on the future glory of God, to remember the hope of heaven. That despite all of the difficulties and struggles that we face now, a time when the dead will be raised and sickness will be no more, and the present struggles that we have and we are facing will be muted and undone by the overwhelming joy of a people saved by God. That when life gets loud, remember God's I love you. And so this morning, as we take this, this moment to quiet ourselves and to reflect on what Jesus has done for us, maybe you've lost God's I love you in a sea of other noise, distraction and discouragement, despair or, or present circumstances. It's hard to hear God's love speaking into your life. And I want to, if that's you, offer you the same encouragement and the same invitation that God offers through Malachi. This call to return to me. That God is calling us, calling our hearts to return to him. That his love is available to each of us who seek to receive it. And so as we take this time, we take this moment to remember the cross. That when we are tempted to ask, how have you loved us? Let us remember the love of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And maybe we are in a moment where life is good. Or maybe we're on the flip side where life is really difficult. And sometimes in the difficulty, it's hard to hear your love. It's hard to hear your voice. Or if we do hear it, it's easy to doubt it.
and say, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't be dealing with this. I wouldn't be going through this. But in those moments, God, I pray that you would help us to remember the hope that we have in Jesus. Of his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. The penalty that he took on our behalf. The shame and guilt and sin that was nailed to the cross through him. And to see your love ring out through that. God, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray during this time, during this moment, that we would reflect on his love for us, the love that held him to the cross, the obedience with which he followed through to do your will. And I pray that you would resolve in us to do your will, even when times are difficult, and to remember how you have loved us and chosen us. Despite our unworthiness, our unloveliness, God, you have still chosen us and seal us with the promise of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember that at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name.